So Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 to 46. Early in the morning, as he was on his way back to the city, he was hungry, that being Jesus. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, Go, throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? they asked. And who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Then why don't you believe him? But if we say from men, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. Then he said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. 
The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. One of the uh, most influential thinkers of the 20th century is the man who you see on the screen at the moment. Uh, his name was Bertrand Russell, and he was uh, born in the early, uh, right at the beginning of last century or the end of the century before, I'm not quite sure. But uh, he was very influential in the early part of the 20th century through to just after the mid part of the 20th century. He was English and uh, he's noted as being one of the truly great thinkers, uh, at least in, in the English language of the 20th century. Uh, Bertrand Russell was a, um, <clears throat> was a, a man who had uh, opinions on lots of things, on science, mathematics, uh, logic, philosophy, politics, society, and of course religion. Now, in 1927, he delivered a speech which 30 years later in 1957 was uh, published as part of a book of essays and it was called Why I Am Not a Christian. Now, these days, if you published an essay called Why I'm Not a Christian, <clears throat> I don't think it would cause as much of a stir as it did back then, uh, although people like Richard Dawkins and so on are um, on the front foot. Uh, the atheists are on the front foot in our own day. But it is a different climate. Back in the early to mid part of last century, going to church was a very, very common thing to do. Most people went to church and most people would... Uh, uh, if not say that they were a Christian, they would say that I'm an Anglican or a Presbyterian or a Methodist or something like that. And so an essay like that, Why I Am Not a Christian, written by such an influential thinker, was bound to cause a stir. Uh, there were a lot of people who hated it and completely disagreed with what he was saying, but then there was a lot of people who really loved it as well because they were sort of on that tail end of... Uh, of uh, the way things work, whereby their parents might have been born-again Christians, but they were just churchgoers. And uh, they were able to latch on to what Bertrand Russell was saying as an excuse uh, for not wanting to be involved in church and religion anymore. Now, in the essay, Bertrand Russell attacks Jesus. Uh, he reckoned that uh, Jesus was not as moral as what Christians make out that he, that he was, but he actually had some uh, significant flaws in terms of his character. Uh, now, so why would he say that? Well, he, he gives a few reasons. Uh, firstly, he points out that Jesus believed in hell and he says that any person who's truly moral cannot believe in such a thing as everlasting uh, punishment for people. Uh, that's immoral. Jesus is wrong at that point. Uh, secondly, <clears throat> he points out that Jesus used to get very angry uh, with people who didn't want to listen to his preaching. 
a trait which uh, Russell says he has observed that many preachers uh, have. They get angry with people who don't want to listen to their preaching. But thirdly, he talks about the sudden outbursts of anger and rage that came from Jesus. Uh, like when he lashed out and cursed a poor innocent fig tree, for example. Uh, and you can see it, can't you? If you turn open your Bibles to Matthew 21, <coughs> Matthew 21 verse 18, uh, Jesus and his disciples had stayed overnight in a village outside of uh, Jerusalem, uh, to the east of Jerusalem, a village called Bethany. And uh, they got up early in the morning in order to head back into town, into the city of Jerusalem. Um, but they mustn't have had much breakfast because uh, Jesus, as they're trekking along towards Jerusalem, is feeling hungry. And up ahead, he sees a, um, a fig tree. Now, figs are great for breakfast. Figs are great for eating for, you know, for, for hunger. Uh, they're, they're tasty, they're nice, they're filling. And uh, although it wasn't the right season for figs, which was a bit strange, uh, Jesus could see that this fig tree had leaves on it and the, the way that fig trees work is if it's got leaves, then that most likely means it's also got figs. It's a, a rare kind of uh, species in that regard. And so Jesus sees his fig tree, he's hungry, he's looking forward to some breakfast, but when he gets close to the fig tree, what does he see? No figs. No figs. And so, uh, according to Bertrand Russell, in a sudden outburst of rage, in verse 19, Jesus turns to this poor fig tree and he says to it, may you never bear fruit again. And the tree immediately withered and died. Poor tree. Uh, this is what Bertrand Russell concludes about Jesus. He says, I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people known to history. I think I should put Buddha and Socrates above him in those respects. Right? How about that, eh? What do you reckon? What do you reckon? Do you reckon that, uh, uh, that this little incident is evidence of a chink in Jesus' moral armour, that he's not really God after all, that he's just a human like any one of us and he got cranky with this poor fig tree and cursed it? That's what Bertrand Russell reckons. Or is there more to it than this? <clears throat> well, in order to understand uh, the cursing of the fig tree by Jesus, we need to set it in its context and understand what else was, was going on uh, around it. Remember this, Jesus had been on a journey, not just the journey from Bethany to Jerusalem on that morning, but uh, for the last section of his ministry, and we, from, from chapter 16 of uh, Matthew's Gospel onwards, Jesus had said to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and that he must be rejected by the chief priests and the religious authorities and that he must be beaten and that he must be killed. Jesus had been on a long journey heading towards Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was the headquarters of Israel's spiritual life. Uh, it was the place where God, more than any other place, was 
formally worshipped. It was the, uh, uh, the, the, the headquarters for the, uh, the priests and the religious leaders. Uh, it was where the priests offered up sacrifices to God uh, to pay for the sins of people. And at the heart of Jerusalem was, of course, the temple, where God symbolically dwelt. Jerusalem, throughout the Old Testament, was to be a beacon, a spiritual beacon to the whole of the world. It was to be a place where godliness was evident. But instead, when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem the day before, which you heard about last week, what did he find? He found that it was spiritually barren. That's what he found. And here, again, uh, in verse 23, when he actually got to Jerusalem on that day, he arrived at the temple. People gathered around to hear uh, Jesus teach. But the spiritual leaders were not so welcoming. They had an axe to grind. They had a bone to pick with Jesus. Because the day before, when he was in, the, in Jerusalem, in the temple, what did he do? He busted up the marketplace. They'd set up a marketplace inside the temple. They'd turned the house of God into a den of thieves and Jesus overturned their, their stalls, their tables of the money changers and those who were selling the little things to offer up to God and so on, all the religious trinkets, etc. And so in verse 23... Have a look at that. In, in, in view of everyone there who gathered around to hear Jesus preach, these spiritual leaders challenged Jesus. What right do you have? Who gave you authority to do these things? And so Jesus says, well, look, I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll do a deal with you. I'll answer your question if you answer my question. Verse 25. John's baptism, that's John the Baptist. John's baptism, where did it come from? Did it come from heaven or did it come from man? Now, this is a curly question because what he's saying is, who, who do you reckon uh, gave him the Baptist authority? Where did his authority come from? You want to know where my authority comes from? What about John the Baptist? What do you think about him? Now, the crowds loved John the Baptist uh, and the Spiritual leaders recognise this and they thought to themselves, well, if we say that John the Baptist's authority came from man, then we're going to cop it from the crowds. But if we say that John the Baptist's authority came from heaven, then we've got problems as well because if John the Baptist's authority came from heaven, well, the real question is, well, why didn't you believe what John the Baptist said? Especially, what did, why didn't you believe what he said about Jesus. And so Jesus has effectively trapped them. They're caught between a rock and a hard place and the way that they slithered out of that, you see in verse 27, they took the coward's way out. They simply said in answer to Jesus' questions, oh, we're sorry, Jesus, we don't know. We've got no idea where his authority came from. So Jesus says this to me. He says, look, I'll tell you a couple of stories and tell me what you think about these stories. Okay? Story number one. Have a look at verse 28. Uh, chapter 21. What do you think? <clears throat> says Jesus. Uh, there was a man who had two sons. 
he went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. What's Jesus getting at? Saying that there's one, he's one son who said he would do something, but he didn't do it. The other son who at the beginning wasn't going to do it, but he ended up doing it. Uh, what's this all about? Well, he explains it in verses 31 and 32. And he says that the two sons represent two different groups of people. Group number one are tax collectors and prostitutes. Now, what we're talking about here is the, uh, the low life of Jewish society. Uh, this was, these were the scum of society. Um, prostitutes were looked down upon as being the epitome of, um, of ungodliness, of sinfulness. Tax collectors uh, were no better. Uh, the, the tax collectors were, uh, were Jewish people who had offered themselves up to the Romans uh, to do the task of sucking money out of their, their compatriots, out of their fellow Jews, skimming off a huge percentage to enrich their own, uh, their own pockets and handing the rest over to the occupying force, to the Romans. Uh, that, th- th- these were, they were considered to be worse than Gentiles as far as Jews were concerned because they were actual traitors to the Gentiles traitors to their people. So that's group one, the low life of society. Uh, Group number two, well that's the men who are standing right in front of Jesus. The the spiritual elite, the interpreters of God's law, the the keepers of God's temple. Now, if you wanted to find spiritual fruit, to which of those two groups would you go to? Suspect you'd go to the spiritual leaders, wouldn't you? If you want to find spiritual life, spiritual fruit, wouldn't you go to spiritual leaders in order to find that? Well, you'd expect that. But take a look at verses 31 and 32. Verse 31, uh, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. See what he's saying? Uh, They were like the first son who says, yep, I'll go and do the job, Dad. But they didn't. They gave all the outward signs but it was all words, no action. Whereas the others were words and action. Now, an interesting thing here is uh, that after Jesus cursed the fig tree, if you go back to verses 21 and 22, after Jesus cursed the fig tree, the disciples were amazed at what had happened and how quickly this fig tree just um, withered away. And so they asked Jesus about that and Jesus said in verses 21 and 22, he said that, uh, that through faith that greater things were going to happen than that 
he said that through faith, they'd be able to say to this mountain, uh, go and pluck yourself up and throw yourself into the ocean. Now, Christians have made all sorts of things, applications from this, that uh, if only you've got faith that you can do anything that you want to do, uh, you've just got to have enough faith. Uh, they don't take it literally that someone's going to head out to Jerusalem and pray for a mountain to be thrown into the sea. They take it figuratively, but they take it out of context. What is Jesus actually saying here? Well, I, I take it that uh, he's not just talking about any mountain. Jesus is talking about a specific mountain. He says, if you say to this mountain, there's two mountains he could have in mind. One's Mount Zion. Jerusalem is built on Mount Zion. could be saying that, uh, that what is going to happen through faith is that the barrier that Mount Zion represents to people coming to know God, as Mount Zion represents the law, that that is actually going to be overcome. could also be that he's looking back at Mount, uh, the Mount of Olives, which is only a few kilometres east of Jerusalem, because in Zechariah chapter 14, in Zechariah's prophecy of the, uh, of, of the gospel, he talks about a day when figuratively that the Mount of Olives will be split in two and it will create a valley which will be a pathway for Gentiles to stream into Jerusalem. That is that the, uh, that the, the salvation of God is opened up not just to Israel and to its spiritual elite, but to men and women from all over the world. And Jesus is saying that that is a great miracle that uh, the disciples will see. Now let me ask you this question. Uh, if you want to think about miracles, what is the greatest miracle that can happen in a person's life? How about this one? How about this? How about a prostitute? Or how about a greedy, slimy, um, crooked, traitorous tax collector? How about a person like that uh, repenting, turning his life over to God, being forgiven? and indeed becoming one of the most spiritually fruitful people of all time. It's not what you'd expect, is it? That would seem impossible, that someone like that should actually become a very spiritually fruitful people. Well, we're talking about Matthew, who wrote this Gospel. The author of this Gospel was a tax collector, one of those slimy, uh, crooked, uh, traitorous people becomes one of the greatest spiritual leaders of all time. That is a great miracle. And the priests, the elders, the Pharisees, the religious elite had witnessed this kind of thing happening. They'd been out to see John the Baptist as he was preaching in the wilderness and as people were being baptised and repenting. They had seen people like that, prostitutes, tax collectors, the scum of society, those who were considered to be way outside the kingdom of God, 
they had seen such people repenting, turning their lives over to God and having their lives changed around. And yet, they themselves refused to repent. They themselves refused to see that they were in the same category of having needing to repent. They themselves remained outside of the kingdom of God. The, Pharisees, the, 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 the prostitutes, the tax collectors are like the son who said, no, Dad, I'm not going to go out and do the work for you. But they did. These religious elite were the ones who were saying, yeah, of course, we'll do whatever you want. But they didn't. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Now, what he's saying, therefore, is that the fig tree is them. They are the fig tree. They are the ones who looked like they had fruitfulness because they have all of the trappings of religion. They looked like they had, they had leaves, but there's no fruit. And then Jesus says, well, look, I'll tell you another story just in case you don't get it. Verse 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. Right? Now, this was a common investment strategy in the first century, so Jesus here has knew exactly what he was talking about. This was common practice, that a rich person with excess money might, as an investment, purchase a big block of land, set it up, uh, as a vineyard with a wine press and with terraces and all that sort of stuff. And then he would go and rent it out to tenant farmers. So they would work the farm and the idea was that every so often he would send one, send one of his servants and the servant would collect the fruit from the vineyard, some of the fruit, take it back as rent and the, uh, the, the tenant farmers would keep the rest as profit for themselves. And by the way, another interesting thing there is that when that sort of thing happened, the custom was that if the landowner did not have any sons to inherit his land when he died, then when he did die, the land would be, um, become the property of the tenant farmers. But that was a custom. But when the farmer in Jesus' story sent his servants to collect the rent, there is a shocking element to this story. You see it in verse 35. When he sent the servants to collect the rent, the fruit, the tenants seized his servants, they beat one, killed another, and they stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Now, that question at the end is, is a curved ball uh, for these spiritual leaders to whom Jesus is talking. Um, because when they heard the story, they were outraged. Uh, they were indignant. They were angry. Uh, how dare those ungrateful tenants 
do such a wicked thing to that uh, landowner. And they said, in uh, verse 41, they called them wretches. Uh, They said that the landowner should put an end to them, that is, he should kill them, and then he should rent the land out to someone else. Now, sort of Jesus' strategy here uh, reminds me of, remember when David, King David, committed adultery with Bathsheba and then to cover his tracks he went out and uh, had Uriah killed on the battlefield and then he was confronted by the prophet Nathan. Remember that story? And Nathan approaches David and he tells him this hypothetical story about this uh, powerful, uh, wicked king who does something dreadful to this poor person who's one of his subjects. And uh, David is absolutely outraged by the story about what this, this wicked king did to this poor man. And then Nathan eyeballs him and says, well, that man is you. And so David is condemned by his own reaction to the story. Well, this is what's going on here. These religious leaders are condemned by their reaction to the story about the tenant farmers. See, what's going on here? The vineyard is the nation of Israel. The tenants are the religious leaders. The servants who came to collect the fruit, well, they are the prophets whom God sent to Israel throughout the Old Testament. Now, what did what did Israel do to the prophets that God sent? Well, historically... Israel abused the prophets. Sometimes they killed them. Um, Just think about some of the key prophets in the Old Testament. Isaiah, for example, he was abused. Uh, Jeremiah was thrown into a slimy pit. Uh, Ezekiel was rejected. Uh, Amos and Elijah had to flee for their lives. Micah was smashed in, in the face. And uh, Zechariah was interesting because they murdered Zechariah. Do you, does anyone remember where Zechariah was when he was murdered? Anyone want to have a guess? Inside the temple. I mean, how is that for religious hypocrisy? How is that for irony? The prophet of God is murdered inside the temple of God. But these were only servants. Now the son has come and they're about to murder him. Have a look at verse 42. Verse 42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, uh, the Lord or or the cornerstone? The Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. Now, at first glance, that kind of seems like it's a bit sort of left fieldish. How does that connect with the parable of the tenants and the farmer and all that sort of thing? But it's not really left fieldish. It's a quote from Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 was the same psalm that people quoted the day before when Jesus entered triumphantly into the city of Jerusalem. Uh, Remember when they cried out, Hosanna, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, as Jesus came in on the back of a donkey. Right? That was Psalm 118 as well. And what Jesus is doing here is he's taking the psalm which had been applied to him the day before to praise him, he's taking that same psalm and he's now applying it to the religious leaders to condemn them. He talks about this, this capstone, or it could be a cornerstone. It's, in the, the Greek it's headstone. And, and the, the headstone is, is very, very important for building. Uh, what it was is that it's the, the stone that um, uh, it, it had to be of perfect proportions, of perfect shape, uh, of perfect angle, and uh, they would set that down and every other stone would be aligned to that particular stone. So the, uh, the shape and the direction of the building would depend upon the on that stone being, being, being accurate and being placed correctly. And builders would often reject a whole stack of stones before they'd find one that was perfect enough to be uh, the cornerstone. And what Jesus is saying here is that uh, they are about to reject, or they are rejecting, the cornerstone. Uh, they have rejected the sun. Uh, they are like the... Uh, the, the tenant farmers who want to kill the sun, kill the sun, and uh, now they're also, in doing that, rejecting the stone, which would be, which would actually hold God's kingdom in place. Jesus is telling them that they are about to kill him. That's what that's what he's saying. Now, of course, that was turned out to be a self-fulfilling prophecy, didn't it? Because they are so angered, so outraged that Jesus would dare insinuate that they are in the same category as the people who rejected the prophets of the Old Testament, that he should dare say that about him, about them, that, uh, well, they react, don't they? Have a look at verse 45. Verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew that he was talking about them. So what did they do? Did they humble themselves? Did they fall down on the ground? Did they, did they uh, beg for forgiveness? Did they repent? Did they turn back to God? Is that what they did? No, of course not. Verse 46, they looked for a way to arrest him. That's what they did. They didn't want to arrest him right there and then in front of the crowd because the crowd might turn on them and they were cowards. But you see, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> Jesus says, this is the kind of people you are. They say, how dare you say about that, that about us? And then they go and do exactly what he said they were going to do. Now, these men who, who confronted Jesus, these men who had the outward signs of religion, um, they had position, they had ecclesiastical titles, they had the flowing robes and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, they had all of the traditions, uh, all of the trappings of religion, they had ceremony, they had flowing robes, they had tradition and so on. Uh, they looked the part, but they were like the fig tree. The fig had leaves 
but no fruit because that tree was dying. That's why. Now these men looked religious, but they were spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. Friends, what you'll find is that religious people always reject true spirituality. Uh, that uh, throughout the Bible and throughout history, the people who love religion tend to reject Jesus. And uh, throughout history we've seen how the, the people who actually bring the true message about God and Jesus even to the churches, are persecuted and rejected for doing so, often by the ecclesiastical hierarchy, the people who make a career out of religion. But what is the mark of the true Christian? The Bible has a lot to say about spiritual fruit. In John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus says that he is like a um, like a grapevine, he's he is the vine, and we are like branches. Uh, that is, if we live in Jesus, if He is central to our lives, if He's first in our hearts, if He dwells in us, then we will produce much fruit because we're connected to the life source, to the vine itself. What it's saying is that the person who is spiritually alive is the person who is connected with Jesus. That's what it's about. They trust that Jesus is God. They trust that he died for their sins. They trust that he is risen from the dead and like the tax collector who wrote this gospel, they turn their lives over to serving and honouring and obeying him. That is the truly spiritual person. We need to be discerning because the reality is that there are many people who call themselves Christians and I'm not just talking about cultural, you know, people who put that on the census form, but there are people within churches, there are people uh, within leadership in churches uh, who call themselves Christians. But if the gospel of Jesus is not central to their lives, uh, not central to who they are as persons, then what they have is religion but not faith in Christ. Uh, what they have is a, a dry, barren, fruitless religion. Uh, and, and that is the same as rejecting Jesus. You see, there's different ways you can reject Jesus. Uh, you can be like Bertrand Russell and just say, look, I'd put you know, Socrates or... Buddha above Jesus because you know he's just not moral and all that sort of thing. That's one way. That's an overt. Richard Dawkins and Co. doing it these days, right? That's an overt way of rejecting Jesus. Uh, or you can reject Jesus in a far more passive way. You can actually say, "Yeah, I believe in God." You can even you can say, "Yes, I believe in Jesus." Uh, you can be actively involved in your church, but if He is not number one in your life as God in the flesh who died for your sins, to whom you owe everything, 
then what you have is effectively rejected Jesus. Uh, you've embraced a Jesus, but not a, the Jesus of the Bible. You've rejected the true Jesus. It's a passive rejection. And the reality there is if we reject Jesus, then he will reject us. Okay? Now, that is a danger. Uh, there is always a danger that we can put our trust in religion when we should be putting our trust in Jesus. But there, there's a second danger for us as well, which I'll finish up on. And that is the danger that we can easily forget that we really ought to be displaying spiritual fruit. Uh, that is, we may understand the gospel, we may be committed to the truth of the gospel, we may be absolutely zealous about communicating the truth of the gospel to other people, but that is still not the same thing. Uh, you can still be like that fig tree with leaves but with no, with no fruit. Because Jesus once said, by their fruit you shall know them. It's not by what a person believes and says they believe in their head. It's how that is actually translated through and displayed in terms of their lives. Uh, you can say, I trust in Jesus, but true faith in Jesus will always bear spiritual fruit. Now, what is that spiritual fruit? Well, something for you to think about as we close. In Galatians chapter 5, uh, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. That's a lot to take in, isn't it? There's a few sermons uh, to be unpacked from that verse. But I want us to all think about it. I want us to think about, are we, for example, gentle people? Has the gospel of Christ not only impacted our head, but has it translated through to our hearts so that we treat people with the gentleness, with the love, with the, uh, the patience, with the faithfulness of Jesus? If someone, if Jesus were to look at us, would he see a fig tree with leaves but with no fruit? Or would he have, would he see fruit? Would there be a great harvest in our lives? That's the question I want to leave you on uh, this morning. I want you to think about, is your love for Jesus shown by your changing character? Are you growing fruit in your spiritual life? Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for Jesus' perception, his insight, his discernment. Uh, we thank you how he was able to strip away the pretenses of uh, false religion and uh, get to the heart of the issue of uh, uh, turning back to you and bearing spiritual fruit. We pray for ourselves that we would not be like the barren fig tree, uh, displaying the outward signs of a uh, form of religion, but not actually displaying the fruit of the Spirit. 
Help us to have that fruit. Help us, Lord God, as we reflect on who Jesus is, on what he's done for us, uh, that as your spirit works in our lives, that we would be working at becoming people who are known for our love, for our joy, for our peace, for our patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.